When my wife and Kim and I got married more than 25 years ago, we had a lot going for us. We did. Both of us came from really solid homes where the parents had stayed together. And in fact, my parents and both Kim's parents have been married a combined more than 100 years uh, between the two couples. And that's something to celebrate. We had strong relationships with our siblings, both Kim did and I did, came from very solid families. We were raised in small-town Americana. Some of you might remember that, where you didn't lock your doors. It was safe and secure, a tight-knit community. If you did anything bad, the neighbors would tell on you. And so we were raised in a more conservative, moral environment. And most of all, when Kim and I got married, before we even met, we each had made lifelong commitments to Jesus Christ so that when we got married, we were more in love with Jesus than each other, but we were very much in love with each other and had a solid base from which to work with. Uh, No matter how you look at it, we had a lot going for us back in June of 1988, and I have to believe it was one of the easiest weddings the minister did that year because people looked at us and said, this is a no-fail proposition. And things were great for the first few years. I mean, I went to the ministry, we moved to Detroit. That wasn't great, but I went into the ministry and (laughs) ended up serving in a wonderful town. We had a couple of kids uh, after about two years of marriage, let's get the date right, and and things were going really well. Uh, But as can happen in any relationship, over time, you can start to see some cracks develop in the foundation. And after about four years of marriage, Kim and I started to struggle in our relationship. I was working too much in my first ministry, and I wasn't home as much as I needed to be. Kim was not enjoying being stuck at home with a toddler and a newborn. We were in a new town, hours from where we were born, raised and married. And to add insult to injury, and we all have this, Kim and I both had issues in our lives that can lay dormant for a long time, but stress and difficult circumstances can bring those out. And it was bringing those out, issues in our personality that was making our marriage quite a struggle. And we were struggling significantly. And I'll never forget one day uh, that I came home in the early 1990s and Kim and I were talking after the kids went to bed and she said to me, you know, Jamie, we've known each other for six years now. We've been married for four and I feel like you don't even know me. Amen. you ever had your wife say that to you? My first response was so typically male that I cringe now in response. I looked at Kim and I defended myself and I said, what do you mean I hardly know you? Of course I know you. We sleep in the same bed, we eat together, we serve in the same church, we go on vacations together, we were raised in the same hometown, we're rearing our kids together. Come on, Kim, you're looking for way too much from me. Of course I know you. And she didn't say a word. A tear just started to go down her her face, and she just started to cry. And I realized right then, men, that the simple fact that I had no idea why she was crying, I had no idea how to explain that tear, hit me like a ton of bricks. I really don't know her. I can't explain this situation. I can't explain her disappointment. I don't know the longing of this woman's heart. I don't know why she's disappointed right now. There's a lot that I don't know about this woman. And that year, back in the early 90s, more than 20 years ago, I vowed that I was going to spend the rest of my life trying to get to know this woman on a deeper level because I guess after even a half a decade, I don't. 
And though I still contend that it's easier to understand quantum mechanics than it is a woman's heart, I can honestly say that more than 20 years later, I know a lot more about the inner workings of my wife that I married and whom I love than I did in those first few rocky years. And as Kim and I, just in the last few years, have clearly entered what we're labeling the second half of our life, we're more excited to learn more about each other than we ever were after 25 years of marriage. You see, here's the point. I find that our faith relationship with God through Jesus Christ is an awful lot like this. I do. I find it's an awful lot like a good marriage, even at times a struggling marriage. What do I mean by that? If you're a Christian here today or at Cactus Venue or the chapel, if you're a Christian here today, then one of two things has happened. Either you were raised in a Christian home and taught to love Jesus from an early age, or at some time in your childhood, teen, or adult years, you accepted Christ and became a follower of him. And most likely over the years, if you and I are having a cup of coffee and I asked what's happened over the years, you would tell me about certain rhythms and routines that you've developed now in order to nurture your faith in Christ. And if I asked you what, you'd say, well, I read the Bible on a regular basis. I have a devotional life and I pray. I go to church regularly. And then I'd look at you and just, you'd say, okay, semi-regularly, but I show up pretty often. Uh, maybe you found a small group to join or a place of service, or maybe you've gotten excited about missions. In other words, you've hung around long enough that you've learned that you need to nurture your faith in God and you develop some rhythms and routines to do that, kind of like a good marriage. And in short, you're fairly committed or relatively committed to your faith in Jesus, similar to how many people are committed to their marriage. And you do things to nurture this, and it's a good thing. And yet, in the midst of all of this, there are times, I got to believe, and even more times than you might care to admit, when you're most honest with yourself and you wonder, do I really know him? Do I know him? That's the key question. It's the question that my wife was asking me just a half decade into our marriage. Do you really know me? Could you describe me, the inner workings of me, to other people? And there are times, even in our Christian walk, where I think it's good and right to ask yourself, do you know him? Jesus predicted this. Jesus actually said that there's going to be some who do awesome things in his name and represent his name, and yet when they die and go to appear before him, he's going to look at them and said, I never knew you. I didn't even know you. That should scare some of us. And we should ask the key question that in the midst of all of our Christian activity, in the midst of what we think might be a good marriage, do we really know him? Guys, I got to tell you, I ask that question even 30 years into this now on a regular basis. The Bible describes you and me as the bride of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And yet as the bride, we have to ask, do we know the groom like a bride needs to know the groom? And if this query interests you at all, if it scratches where you spiritually itch, if it resonates with you in the least, then I believe you're going to like the next couple of months here at your church. If it doesn't, well, this is not going to be your season. But if it does, then I think you're really going to resonate where we're going because here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a few weeks in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. 
as I said last week, kind of a prelude to where we're going to be going next year in the Gospel of John. And we're going to take a look at Mark chapter 1 and get this, how Mark introduces us to Jesus. Because you see, all the gospel writers did that. In the very early parts of their gospels, they were bent on introducing this savior of humankind to the people that they were writing to, us. And Mark introduces us to Jesus, but in a unique way. What Mark does is he introduces us to Jesus through showing us how we can know him through various avenues. We're going to call this series of messages avenues because an avenue is simply a road you take to a destination. And in Mark chapter 1, there's seven different avenues that he presents before us on how we can know Jesus, yes, for the first time, but I have found now even uh, as I grow in my knowledge of him, it's the same avenues. And you're saying, like, what avenues? Well, uh, we know Jesus through the help of another. We're going to begin with that next week when we look at John the Baptist. We know Jesus through times in the wilderness, when we take a look at Jesus' wilderness experience. We know Jesus through learning how to listen to him. We know Jesus through learning to talk to him. We know Jesus through actively following him. You get the idea. All various avenues that Mark's going to present before us that, that I promise you this, that if you pour your heart and soul into our study over the next couple of months, you could possibly go from having really good doctrine and a lifestyle around Christianity to now being able to say, I'm getting to know him. You know, we describe our faith in Jesus as modern-day evangelicals as a personal relationship. And yet I wonder how many Christians could say that they're really in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be after in this series. Now, before we even get to these seven avenues that we're going to be going through over the next uh, seven weeks, we need to lay some groundwork this morning that is crucial for any attempt to know Jesus. And specifically, we need to cement today why he came in the first place and what he is after. And though some of you are tempted to say right now, in Cactus and Venue and Chapel, you too, you're tempted to say, well, I know why he came, and I know what he is after, I would beg you to stay with me right now. Because I don't think that you might not know all the ins and outs, even of some of the wording Jesus used, and what he was really after in coming here to planet Earth. What do I mean by that? I want you to look at how Jesus begins his opening words in the Gospel of Mark. They're recorded in verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, and this is Jesus speaking. These are his very first words that Mark records after he talks about John the Baptist that we're going to look at next week. Verse 15 are Jesus' first words as recorded by Mark when he began his public ministry. Look at what he says in verse 15. It says, Jesus said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. These are Jesus' opening words. So focus on those two initial phrases, and we're going to look at the other two in a minute. The two initial phrases, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And I got to ask you, what do you think Jesus meant by this? Especially that somewhat cryptic phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, think of all the things that Jesus could have said as his opening words based on what he was going to do for us. Jesus could have said as his opening words, I'm here to die for your sins. 
which indeed he did do. Or he could have said, I'm here to help you become better people, which he helped many people do. Or he could have said, I'm here to set you doctrinally straight about God, which Jesus did do on many occasions. I mean, he could have said a number of things in his opening statement here, but he didn't. He chose to say this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And lest you think this is a one-off, get this, Jesus would go on in the Gospel of Mark to repeat this phrase, the kingdom of God, or its cognate, the kingdom of heaven, more than 20 times. Matthew in his Gospel uses this phrase 50 times in, in having Jesus talk about the kingdom. And so we got to ask, what does he mean? What does he mean by the kingdom of God and the fact that it's at hand? Now, contained right in this one verse, we're going to look at one verse here today, I want you to notice me three things that we can deduce about this kingdom of God being at hand, the time being fulfilled just from this verse. Here's the first thing, and that is that the kingdom is here now. That this kingdom, whatever it means, we'll get to that in a minute, but the first thing we see is that it is here now. And we know this because verse 15 says that it is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand. That, that phrase, fulfilled, literally means that a definite moment has arrived. The word fulfilled literally pictures like the sun coming up. You ever notice the sun coming up like over the McDowell Mountains? And you can see it coming, 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 coming. And then it finally crests over the mountains and it is here. That's what that word means. The time is fulfilled. And then Jesus, to cement this idea, says that it's at hand. It, it, that phrase literally means it's upon you. It's a spatial phrase talking about proximity. The NIV translates this near, that the kingdom of God is near. But we've got to be careful with that because it doesn't mean near as in close but no cigar. No, it means near as if I was standing near, say, to Ron here in the first row, and I was very near him. Don't you love it when people do that? I have some people who talk to me, and they get, like, right in my face. And I'm like, you're way too close to me. Let's take a step back here. And that's really what this phrase means here is that they are standing very close to you. They're right next to you. They're upon you. And Jesus is saying that about the kingdom. Don't miss this. Whatever Jesus means by the phrase, the kingdom of God, we know one thing. And that's that it is here right now. It's not waiting until heaven. It's not waiting for you to get your act together. It's not something reserved for just a few religious people. It's upon you now. Now, hang on to that and notice a second thing that Jesus means in talking about this kingdom here, and it's this, that this kingdom, again, whatever it is, is being brought to us by Jesus himself. You're saying, where's that? Well, it's just the logic behind Jesus' words here. I mean, when Jesus says that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, the logical question to ask after that will, would be, well, what has changed that has made this kingdom now at hand? And the obvious answer is, I'm here. That's what Jesus is saying. That the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. Why? Because I am now with you. And so the second thing we learn about this kingdom is that it has come in, with, and through Jesus. Fascinating. Not through Moses and the Old Testament law. 
not through a bunch of good works as some religions try to maintain, not through a bunch of rote religious practices as even some Christians seem to assert today, as good as all that stuff might be. No, whatever this kingdom is, it comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It was brought to this world 2,000 years ago, and it's still going on today, whatever this kingdom is. And so let's get down to the heart of it all. What is this kingdom? What precisely is this brought to us by Jesus at hand upon you now, the time is fulfilled kingdom that he's talking about? And this brings us to the third observation we need to note about Jesus' phrase, the kingdom of God, and it's this. And that is that the kingdom is God's personal and spiritual reign in the lives of his followers. I've chosen my words very carefully there, so let me repeat that. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is God's personal relational reign, that's the operative word, in the lives of his followers. And it took Jesus three years and then the Holy Spirit some time after that to help people in the first century finally get this. You see, to be sure, it's fascinating as we see this idea of the kingdom unfolding in the Gospels. Uh, when Jesus first used this word, the kingdom, like here in Mark 1, I'm just telling you, trust me on this, nobody really had a clue what he meant by the kingdom of God. In fact, back then, the word kingdom meant what some of you might think it meant, and that's that it meant some earthly show of force. But we don't use the word kingdom today. Like if you, you know, develop a new business and you got, say, 10 employees, you don't walk in and say, welcome to my kingdom. <laughs> we don't call our country a kingdom. But back then, in pre-medieval times, the, the idea of a kingdom was simply a cultural, social force that was being built on earth. And so when Jesus first used this word kingdom, the Romans understood it. They said, yeah, we're building a, a democratic kingdom. The Greeks from Alexander the Great had been building a, a kingdom. Even the Jews were waiting for a Messiah deliverer who they thought would bring back the days of David and Solomon to build a kingdom once again on earth. And so all of them were thinking materially and culturally and socially and even economically and yet, as you track through the Gospels, as Jesus begins to further talk about this kingdom, it gradually became clear that he was not using this word as they used it. Uh, to be sure, look up here on the screen in Cactus and Venue you're, and Chapel, you're looking at your screens, but keep your eyes focused there and, and look at how Jesus would use this word, the kingdom. He says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Well, that rocked them right there, right? <laughs> My kingdom is not of this world. It's not the Roman or Greek or even the, 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 the messianic or how you think it's going to be a messianic kingdom here on earth setting up the new temple and all of that. No, no it's not of this world. And then Jesus would say this in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, the kingdom of God is within you. And again, that rocked him even more. Like they're going, okay, so wait, you're not going to be building temples and building this, and you're not going to be setting up structures. It's the, the, the kingdom within you. And then as he talked further about the kingdom, he talked about how the kingdom has kicked out all the healthy leaders and invited those who are sick and in need of a doctor, insinuating that it's going to be wide open to all kinds of people, not just the religious. I mean, please see, Jesus painted a picture 
of a very powerful and literal kingdom, the kingdom of God. But it was a kingdom, as he talked about it, that was going to be set up, going to be resident in the hearts and minds of any of his followers, eventually expressed through his church, but not a church that had a building per se, but a church that was the people of God. It's a kingdom that had the power to alter the course of a human life, but it's a kingdom that was more about a personal spiritual kingdom at this stage more than anything else. As Gary Wills says in his book, What Jesus Meant, look up here on the screen, he says, the kingdom is nothing short of heaven's reign in the hearts of people. That's the operative phrase. It's heaven reigning inside of you and I as Jesus is now the center of our lives. It's a personal relational kingdom that Jesus brought much more powerful than any other kingdom on this earth. As Jesus says, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And don't misunderstand. I want to be very clear here. It's not that Jesus' kingdom doesn't touch or influence this earth and world of ours. Of course it does. Jesus, in describing his followers, said that we would be in the world, just not of this world. It's just that the central locus of operation of this kingdom, the place where this kingdom originates and operates most fully, is God working in the hearts and minds of his followers as we abandon ourselves to him through his son, Jesus. And so add all this up. You got a kingdom that is here now, a kingdom that is brought to us by Jesus, a kingdom that is more personal and spiritual in nature than anything else. And so here's the foundational truth you must get if you're ever going to know Jesus in a true and lasting way. And it's our main point this morning, and I've been leading up to it our whole time, and it's this, that Jesus came to bring the reality of God to you. If you've ever wondered why he came, why God became flesh, why the Son of God came to this earth, it's simple. He came to bring the reality of God and all the fullness of God, as the epistles will say, to you and your personal life eventually infused in a big thing called the church. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He came to bring you home to God. He came to bring you into a lifelong, faith-filled, love-infused relationship with the Father. I don't know of any other way to say it than the reality of God to you. And you might be asking, well, what is the reality of God? Uh, We'll we'll try this on for size. The reality of God is you so strongly trusting him and having the ability to trust him in everything that you go through, no matter what. That's the reality of God. That no matter what this world throws at you, no matter what culture comes your way, you are rock solid in your personhood, secure in your trust with God because the kingdom of God has been brought to you, the reality of God, through Jesus. As Jesus says, they can kill the body, but they can't touch the soul. That's the idea. And and you're saying, well, well, like, what are you talking about? I I, I thought, I've been back two weeks now. Some of you said I've only been back a week. I've been back two weeks now. And and in the two weeks that I've come back, uh, this place has yet to suck the life out of me, so that's good. I I really had a refreshing break. But I have been neck deep, once again, in, in ministry. And, and, and I love ministry, but let's face it, ministry is, is many times problem-centered. I'm neck deep in, in people's problems. And so just since I've been back, I've been dealing with relational breakdown that occurred while I was gone, some serious relational breakdowns in, in the lives of some of you. 
frustrating jobs, financial difficulties, emotions that go haywire, depression and anxiety that are out of control, a runaway culture that doesn't share our values. America is not what it used to be. I mean, just in two weeks, these are the things that have been brought to my attention. These are the things that we struggle with. Here's the gospel's point. In the midst of all of that, they can't touch your soul. In the midst of all of that, you have the possibility to have peace and security. Why? Because you're a part of a kingdom. And this kingdom is all about bringing the reality of God to your life. So that even if things go south, this side of heaven, you know that there's a better place the other side of heaven and you're already tapping into it now and you have peace. It's God brought to you so strongly that you now have a living hope. That's the words that Peter would use in his epistle. A living hope inside of you that is so real that nothing can dash the peace and purpose that you have. And most profound, the reality of God is God brought to you so strongly that you now have the capacity, Christian, to relate to those around you with truth, love, and grace to the point that they might even go, whoa, what has gotten into you? And your answer is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now inhabits me, and I can love you with the love of Jesus Christ. I can manifest the grace of God to you because the reality of God is stronger in me than anything else. Please see, people, that this kingdom that Jesus came to bring, though a personal and spiritual kingdom, is a potent kingdom. It has the, the capacity to change the trajectory of a human life and one's future forever. That's the kingdom. And that's what God is bent on building inside of you and even inside of our church, that we might know him more than anything else. You know, I've given a lot of thought over the years to this idea of kingdom building. And, you know, one of the frustrating things for me as a pastor is that churches, and many of you have seen this, and, and, and Christian culture can so easily get off track. And what's really insidious about, about this is that not only do we get off track, but we get off track with good things, with what C.S. Lewis called second place things, good things, but they still get us off track from the primary point. And so as a result of that, what's happened, especially to Christianity in America, is that sometimes we've focused on good things, but second place things so strongly that those actually become our kingdom more so than even this personal spiritual kingdom that's bent on just knowing Jesus. You're saying like what? I want to suggest you four kingdoms that are prevalent within our Christian subculture today that are all good kingdoms, but they are at best the result of our primary kingdom, not the kingdom itself. Here's the first one, and that is that some people equate Christianity fully and most powerfully with a moral kingdom. Christians are supposed to be righteous, and we are. Uh, but sometimes we tout our righteousness so strongly, and I confront this all the time in my evangelism when I'm talking to, to seekers, that they think really all that it really means to be a Christian is that you now become more of a moral person, that you used to not drink, smoke, and go with girls that do, but uh, or used to do that, and now you don't. And the reality is, is that though Christianity is supposed to make us more moral, I mean, righteousness is a kingdom reality, it's the result of knowing Jesus. It's not the heart of it all. Or how about a doctrinal kingdom? I, I, I see that one a lot. Again, Scottsdale Bible, we are a Bible teaching church, and I'm proud of that. 
We will be a Bible teaching church as long as I am your pastor. And the reality is I believe strongly in doctrine. But do we all understand this? At the end of the day, the kingdom at its heart is not a doctrinal kingdom. It's a personal, relational, spiritual kingdom of which doctrine informs us rightly about. Doctrine leads to knowing Jesus. But here's what scares me. It's possible to have your doctrine down and not know Jesus. It's possible to believe all the right things, but not engage your heart and your life with him in personal relationship. I mean, 20 years ago in my marriage, I believed all the right things about marriage and even Kim. I did. And I convinced myself that I was doing all the right things. And she sat there and looked at me and said, I feel like you don't even know me. And that should wake us all up that it's possible to believe the right things, and yet we're not doing enough with those right things. We're not pointing them in the right direction so that we might really know him. How about this one? This isn't as much our church, but it's prevalent in our culture today. Some people reduce Jesus' kingdom to a therapeutic kingdom. Again, this one's alive and well in America. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times where somebody's talking to somebody about Jesus and say, you know what, man, if you accept Jesus, he's going to heal your marriage and he's going to bless you and you're going to learn financial principles and your kids are going to turn out right and you're not going to struggle with anxiety and depression anymore. And honestly, guys, I think to myself, really? 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 You, you can prove that? I, I mean, I'm the one neck deep in people's problems, and here's how I know that is not true. And that's that I know good Christ followers here at our church that want to know Jesus more than anything else, and yet their kids are struggling, and they're struggling financially, not even due to their own fault. It's a bad economy. And, and they've struggled in their marriage because it takes two to tango, right? And so the reality is you can do all the right things, and as Job found, as Paul the Apostle found, as many followers of God in the Bible found, you can be right smack dab in the middle of God's will and still struggle with what we would call blessings today. And don't get me wrong, God does want to bless us, of course he does. And, and as you know him and grow in him, he just might help you apply better financial principles. And he might bless you with a good job. And he might heal your marriage. I mean, God, we were after all those things. But none of those are the promise. And none of those are the heart of it all. Knowing Jesus is the heart of it all. And probably the most popular among young Christians today is what I've labeled, this is my own term, the activist kingdom where a lot of our young evangelicals today are focusing so much on, in a good way, on justice and culture uh, wars and things like that and vying for justice, that sometimes I wonder if we've forgotten that the heart of it all is to know Jesus. Again, I don't want to be misunderstood here. If some of you go out today and say, you know what, Jamie said we shouldn't be moral and, 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 and that we're not going to get blessed and, and we shouldn't vie for justice and, I'm, and we, we shouldn't care about doctrine. I mean, no, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's possible to park in front of one or more of a combination of those four things that I just listed, make those the core, and when you do, you're engaging in an adventure in missing the point. Because the reality is, the point is, God wants you to know him. So here's how it works. Righteousness should result from knowing Jesus. Doctrine should lead us to a right knowing of Jesus. Blessings might flow from knowing Jesus. Activism should be the result of knowing Jesus. 
But don't ever mistake those things for the core, and that is to know Jesus in a personal spiritual way. Why? Because his kingdom is about bringing the reality of God to you. And so one last question and answer. You might be saying, well, what is it then that God wants from me? How do I tap deeper into this kingdom? I'm glad you asked, because here's your take-home point this morning. In Cactus, Venue, and Chapel, here's your take-home point. If you want to truly know Jesus, you must transfer allegiance to his kingdom. You have to. You're saying allegiance from what? (laughs) All the other kingdoms that vie for your attention. See, you and I live in a culture today that says, put you first. We live in a culture today that says, put your job first. We live in a culture today that says, care about money and security and materialism over and against everything else. We live in a culture today that's confused even about what religion is and what the truth is. And the reality is, is that Jesus came along and said, if you're going to come into my kingdom, if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, You need to transfer your allegiance to him and his kingdom. Look at verse 15. I told you we were going to focus on two more words or phrases before we wrapped up. Here it is. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the two operative words for you to transfer your allegiance are to repent and believe. That word repent in its most rudimentary Greek form means to rethink. It's the Greek phrase, word metanoia. Meta means to change. Noia comes from gnosis, means knowledge. So it means to change the way that you think. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. Because it simply means that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus here today, you used to view the world one way, but now you view it another. You used to get all your information from CNN and Oprah. Now you don't. You used to focus on your 401k and allow that to make your heart feel good and give you security. Now you know that's a lie. The things that used to focus on your mental energy were how you could get ahead in this world. Now you realize that loving another is more important than even yourself. We need to repent. We need to rethink the focus of our lives. And that word believe, boy, it goes right with repenting. Because when you start to repent and rethink, as you start to detach from the things of this world, it's going to be scary and you're going to feel alone. And so what do you do? You believe. You place all of your faith in God through Jesus Christ. You trust in him. That word literally means to rest your weight upon him. So I love how one Bible commentator says it in light of these words, repent and believe. He says, and I quote, they lay claim to the total allegiance of the believer. And that's the point. If you want to truly know God, if you want to have a life marked by peace and purpose in him, you have to transfer your allegiance to his kingdom. Going back to our original story with me and my wonderful wife, Kim, you simply have to get to the point where you say, I really do want to know him more than anything else. True story, after I uh, had that, that, that time in the first few years of my marriage with Kim, we, we still needed a lot of help in our marriage, so uh, my church uh, made it possible so that I could go see a counselor in the community, a good Christian counselor, so Kim and I went together. And it was really kind of a, a wonderful life-giving time where, where we spent some time in counseling, and we actually only spent two sessions together in counseling. Because after the second session together, this is a true story, the counselor basically said to us, I don't need to see her anymore, I need to see you (laughs) on a regular basis. And for the next two years, I went alone to counseling. 
And one of the things that this guy challenged me to on a regular basis is how deeply do you want to know this woman that you married? I mean, Jamie, you do have a choice. I never thought of it that way. I thought, well, I must want to know her because I'm married to her. He said, no, no, back up a little bit. That's not necessarily true. You did marry her and you're not going to leave her. But do you really want to know her? And I had to do some soul searching and ask myself, am I willing to make this woman the only woman, the only one that I'm going to pine after for the rest of my life, in my thinking, in my feeling? Am I willing to pour my energies into knowing her and as I vowed that day in June of 88 to cherish her above all else? And when I made the decision to do that, that was 50% of the battle. And you see, with Jesus, it's no different. He asks us, do you really want to know me? Because if you do, you can. Because here's the good news. He wants to know you. (laughs) And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. So here and at our cactus and at our venue and at our chapel, we're going to go to the communion table. And I couldn't think of a better day to go to communion. We're going to hand out some elements to you in just a minute. And we're going to ask you to hold these elements. And here's what I want you to do as your pastor and as your friend. I want you to use this time, this worship moment just between you and God to ask yourself, do I really want to know him? And am I willing to devote the energies of my life to that cause? And if your answer to that is yes, then take these elements with joy and with a renewed commitment that over the next few weeks at your church and even in your private life, you're going to devote more and more energy to that. God will honor that. If your answer honestly is no, um, then, you know, I'm glad you're being honest. Uh, But if you ever get to that point, and I've been there. I've I've been honest with God about that at times. I'm tired, Lord. I just don't have it in me, you know, whatever. Uh, Then tell God that. And, And ask him to change your heart. And as you do, duck. Because he loves you that much. And if you're that honest with him and tell him that you don't even know your heart is in it, but you wish it were, he's going to meet you there too. He loves you that much. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all that you are to us, for your grace and your goodness and how that there's not one person here today, not one, or even listening, that is beyond the scope of your grace and your touch. And so God, draw us all in with that. Remind us that your kingdom is a personal spiritual kingdom expressed through the corporate church, helping us, Lord, to find the reality of God, to know you in deeper and richer ways. And God, as we meet you at this table now, may we be surprised by joy. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.